Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Sam Storms to the podcast. Dr. Storms currently serves as the senior pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He's also an accomplished author, publishing many articles and books, including his most recent book, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin, and Three Things He'll Never Do with Crossway Publishers. Dr. Storms, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Jason, it's good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, thank you so much for making time. And uh, as we were discussing before we began recording, I had the opportunity to record with you a couple of years ago and delighted to have you back on the podcast today and talking about preaching and uh, in particular, uh, the preacher and the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And uh, just kind of building a conversation from your recent book out, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin. Uh, out with Crossway Publishers. And so, yeah, I've been looking forward to the conversation, so thank you for making time. My pleasure. Before we get to uh, the meat of the conversation, would you give us a word of update on yourself and your family and uh, your ministry and perhaps any other writing projects that are that are coming down the pipeline? Sure. Um, well, my, uh, my time as senior pastor of Bridgeway is coming to a conclusion. Uh, in August of this year, after I finished preaching through the Book of Romans, um, I'm 52 weeks in, so I've got a few more weeks to go. Uh, I'll be stepping down. I'll be uh, devoting myself to writing, uh, blogging, doing podcasts like this, traveling and speaking. Um, I do have some more writing projects. I'm uh, writing a commentary on Romans for Baker Bookhouse. Uh, I'm doing a devotional series of commentaries on Second Timothy and Titus. Um, and uh, gosh, I've got I've got some other book projects in mind, but those are the two most uh, pressing ones. My family's doing great. My wife and I are about to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary in May. Uh, my two daughters are doing great. I've got four grandchildren, and uh, we are just we're at a good time, good season of life. But I think it's time for a younger man, more energetic than myself, to take over the church. And I'm really excited about uh, what the future holds here at Bridgeway. Well, that's great. I'm curious about your preaching, uh, the book of Romans. Did you begin this series intending for it to be your final series, or or can you elaborate on that? Um, you know, I kind of did. I mean, I, I spoke with our elders a couple of years ago about the possibility of making um, either the summer of 2022 or the summer of 2023 kind of the target date. As I got into Romans and I just realized um, – you know, the time was really coming to an end. You just kind of lose your emotional resiliency sometimes when you're leading a large church. And so I said, look, uh, probably August of 22 or whenever I finish Romans. So um, it's probably going to be about um, 65 or 70 sermons in Romans. And it, it, it's, it's good timing. It's time for the next guy to step in. And I'm excited about my successor. He's already here overlapping with me. Uh, but yeah, in a sense, uh, <laughs> The idea of preaching through Romans and then basically dropping the mic and walking off the platform sounded really appealing to me. <laughs> I can't think of a better book on which to conclude. So what happens if you get bogged down in the series and uh, you start preaching smaller, <laughs> smaller, smaller passages? <laughs> hey, I, I have been tempted. Um, basically, the elders would say, fine, you take however long you need. Um, they, they're not pushing me or pressing me in any way. So, uh, but uh, I think I'll be able to finish probably in early to mid-August. Well, I'm happy for you. And again, what a sweet way to go out preaching the great book, the book of Romans. 
speaking of books, tell us about the book, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin. Like, where did this book idea come from? How did it become a book? Uh, even the, the topic itself? Well, I preached a sermon on this subject uh, several years ago. And what struck me in Scripture were all these different analogies and metaphors that go to great lengths to highlight the extent to which God has dealt with our sin in Christ. Um, and so I preached a single message on it. And then when COVID hit, exactly during the months of March and April of 2020, that I was locked down like everybody else. And I thought, you know, I think this is a, this, this is a book. So I just uh, devoted each of uh, those, um, those dozen things uh, to a separate chapter. And I have a couple extra chapters in there as well. And I, I was motivated to write it largely because of the uh, constant complaint that I hear from people all the time. And I'm sure every pastor hears it. Uh, I just can't enjoy God. I just don't see how he could uh, care about me, given my constant failures. I, I go to bed at night feeling dirty, and I wake up feeling defiled. And the, the stinging memory of my past failures has robbed me of peace and joy. And why should God listen to my prayers? And on and on and on it goes. And it just came to, to me in a very powerful way that people are so fixated on their sinning that they have not considered what God has done with their sin. And they need to hear what the Bible says that God has done for us in Jesus, because it's only when we receive that and embrace that truth and trust in it that we will find peace and joy and hope um, and delight in God and the capacity to enjoy his delight in us. So it really, um, it was born not only because of a theological interest in this theme, but also just because of the, the practical realities of the challenges that Christian men and women are facing and uh, just the sense of defeat that they have because I think the enemy just kind of hammers home. Look, uh, you're, you're no good. You're a failure. God's embarrassed by you. You'll never be of any use to anybody or much less to the church. And so I wanted to, I wanted to write in a way that was eminently practical to the pressing needs of the hearts of Christian men and women. So when you think about the topic of sin, and in particular local church ministry, it seems like historically and even presently, churches, movements, denominations have erred in one or two directions. The one direction is all about sin and the judgment that's coming due to sin and and a weightiness to that. And, and, And though you repent, you can really never repent enough, and you're kind of living life outside of God's favor, even for believers. And the other extreme is, uh, you know, more of a, a libertinism, perhaps even antinomianism, and 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 kind of do what you want to do, and, and grace is in is in full supply. Uh, place your book and your basic approach to the topic within those th- those two spectrums of the continuum. Yeah, you've identified it precisely, and I do try to speak to both of those extremes. Um, I think I see more of the former than the latter. I know there's a lot of antinomianism, people who say, look. Uh, since there's no condemnation for me in Christ, I can live however I please. I don't have to worry about experiencing conviction from the Spirit and repentance. Uh, oh, that's only what you do when you first get saved. There is that movement. There is that that tendency in certain sectors of the Christian world. But I think the former is far more prevalent, and that is people live under this cloud of condemnation. They don't experience the freedom and the joy that comes from knowing that, like I say in the book, that God has removed their sin from them as far as the East is from the West, and he's 
he's trampled it underfoot and he's blotted it out and he's laid it on Christ in our stead and he has uh, thrown it into the depths of the sea. That I think is a more pressing problem, but I address both of those perspectives and preaching through Romans has really reinforced it. You know, you think about how Paul really hammers home the reality of human sin in the first three chapters. And then he comes to chapter four and five, and he talks about being justified freely uh, through faith alone in Christ alone. And, um, you know, just progressing through that book. And I've tried to show people, uh, look, you don't have to live under the cloud of condemnation. Christ endured that in your place. He satisfied all the righteous demands of a holy God for you as your substitute. But that should motivate you and, and, and energize you to want to live a godly life to his glory. You know, you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, how Romans 5 ends with grace abounds all the more. And then Paul opens chapter 6. Oh, shall we sin, therefore, that grace might abound even greater? And Paul's response is, God forbid, may it never be. So the idea that somehow what God did for us in Christ in dealing with our sin has now released us to live licentious lives. You know, Jude warned about this in Jude 3. He said, there are those who've crept in unawares and they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And um, of course, that's, a, that's one of the things that I address in the book, speak very hardly, harshly against and try to bring some biblical balance. So I want to get to the actual doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. But before we do, um, can you just outline for us conversationally here the dozen things that God did with our sin? And for our hearers who may not have the book, haven't read the book, just to even encourage their heart by, by walking through these 12 things. Oh, sure. Yeah, the first and the most foundational is he has laid our sin upon his son. You know, Peter talks about he has laid our sins upon, uh, he has become a curse for us. Um, you know, the First uh, Peter 3.18, the righteous for the unrighteous, uh, that he might bring us to God. <clears throat> That's the doctrine of penal substitution, which we can unpack here in a minute if you want to. And on the basis of that, you know, the Bible talks about he has forgiven us of our sins. You know, I was uh, talking with someone yesterday who said, well, I hear you say that, but I don't feel it. it, does, it I, don't, I just live with this constant sense of, of self-contempt, and they don't, they don't know how to experience the reality of God's forgiveness. And, I, and then there's the, the statement in Psalm 51, he has cleansed us of our sin. He's covered our sin. Um, I, the one I like, especially um, in the experience of Hezekiah, he said he's cast all our sin behind his back. Now, he's removed it as far as the east is from the west, right out of Psalm 103. Uh, he has passed over our sin. Uh, then there's those beautiful statements in the, the last few verses of Micah chapter 7. He's trampled our sin underfoot. He's cast it into the sea. He's blotted it out. Uh, then there's that he has turned his face away from our sin. And then one that's really powerful that many people struggle with is where it says he has forgotten our sin and will not remember it any longer. And, the, you know, this is the very heart of the gospel. And if we don't preach those truths of what God has done for us in Jesus at the cross, there's not much hope for joy and success and power in life. So those are the 12 things. And then, of course, the three things. Uh, the ones that are mentioned in uh, Psalm 103, he does not uh, he does not deal with us according to our sin, he does not repay us according to our sin, and he doesn't does not count our transgressions against us. 
So there really are 15 things he has done, but I put him in, in categories of 12 and three, uh, just to try to drive home the force of that as best I could. And did I hear you right saying these originated as a sermon series? Yes, it was initially one show, one 45-minute sermon, and now it's a 200-page book. So yeah, it kind of expanded. So I'm curious, as you preach that sermon, obviously it registered with you, I guess to some degree your people. Uh, something something triggered a light bulb to go off that this needs to be a book. And uh, can you take us back pastorally, what, what you experienced amongst your people in the aftermath of that sermon? Sure. Um, the bottom line is that at the very heart of this book and at the very heart of that message was the doctrine of what we call penal substitutionary atonement. And um, th- this is a controversial issue. It is, uh, is being undermined and ridiculed by a lot of people in the professing Christian world. And I emphasize the word professing there. I wonder sometimes how you can truly be born again and uh, cherish and trust Christ if you don't believe that he, in your place on the cross, endured and satisfied the wrath of God that you deserve, but now never will have to face. Um, so the idea that, penal, that, that the penalty that my sin has de- deserves because the way I have, um, I have committed treason against the God of the universe, uh, and Jesus took that penalty upon himself willingly, voluntarily, joyfully. He was not coerced. Um, he did it um, altogether freely and out of love and exhausted and satisfied in himself the wrath of God. That's what the doctrine of propitiation is. If, if I don't have that message, if I can't preach that to my people, I don't know what good news I have for a lost and dying world. I mean, seriously, if we cannot proclaim to men and women today that the greatest threat to their souls the greatest threat that puts their souls in jeopardy of eternal damnation, if we cannot proclaim that that has been dealt with in and through the person of Jesus Christ, I don't know what, I don't know what we have to say. I mean, if that's, that's not only good news, that's the best news. If we don't have that gospel message, then I don't know what we say to people. I mean, it reduces Christianity to moralism. You know, just stop doing this and start doing that. Change your habits. You know, just by sheer willpower, try to improve your life. Uh, penal substitution is at the very core and center of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without it, I don't have anything to say to people. I, just, I really don't. Well, I'm with you there. So we've kind of drifted into PSA, so let's go ahead and just dive in. Um, when you think of, of this doctrine, and again, preaching and preachers preach texts, and from those texts we, we engage doctrine, and on occasion we just preach a doctrine. Why should preachers, as they preach to God's people, be particularly mindful to bring this doctrine to bear, PSA? Really, in all honesty, as I said earlier, it's because it is the center and the foundation for every other blessing that comes to us. The only reason that I can stand justified by faith through faith, justified by faith in Christ alone, is because of the fact that God has taken my sin, the guilt of it, and imputed it or reckoned it unto Christ, and he takes Christ's righteousness and imputes and reckons it unto me. Um, The only reason I'm an adopted child of God, the only reason I have a sense of peace and joy uh, and hope for an eternity in his presence is because I know that the most fundamental threat to my soul has been dealt with in the person of Jesus. Um, that's the message. Now, granted, it's not the only message we have. We preach the whole counsel of God, 
But apart from that, there is no counsel from God. There just simply isn't. And it, it grieves me to see how so many today are writing books and speaking against this truth because maybe they've heard somebody abuse it. You know, let's, let's, let's be honest. There are some preachers who will so portray penal substitution and they make it look like what has been called cosmic child abuse. You know, mm. this, this bully of a heavenly father who's abusing and coercing his, his innocent son when in fact they don't realize that the cross is the work of the triune God, the father sending the son, the son willingly coming, giving his life of his own accord, the spirit applying that to us. Um, and then I think also what's behind this is um, this idea that we hear so much today. It's not new to our day, but we're hearing it more and more that the concept of wrath is beneath God's dignity. We just don't like the idea that God is angry at sin. And my response to that is, if my God is not angry at sin, I don't think he's worth my worship. If my God does not bristle at unrighteousness and idolatry and immorality and abuse and um, all of the you know, racism and rape and all of the things that occur in our world, if he's indifferent to those things and he just kind of sweeps them under the rug or kind of turns a blind eye to them, um, I'm not sure he's worthy and deserving of our worship. I want a God who, yes, is loving, gracious, kind, long-suffering, gentle, tender, but who is also holy and just and righteous and pure. And our God is both of those, as the scriptures tell us. Um, so I, I fear that this um, this reaction against the notion of divine wrath is largely beneath the surface what's driving this rejection of penal substitution. It's interesting you're, you're dialing in on that in this conversation and, you're, and, and in your book, because this, this modern repulsion to God being a God of wrath who has to punish sin, uh, it may at first glance sound you know, more psychologically uh, um, conducive, you know, for modern man. But 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 a biblical understanding of no, God's wrath is real, and the glorious news is that it has been satisfied in Christ and doesn't have to be satisfied through punishment to ourselves, those of us, meaning all of us who have uh, who have sinned so egregiously against against God Himself. You know, kind of coming to understand that and embrace that biblically and seeing God take that truth and work in the lives of sinners. I mean that that does produce worship, does it not? Oh, yeah, it definitely does. I know it's a kind of a cliched phrase, but I say it repeatedly to people. The love of God sent the Son of God to endure the wrath of God so that we might become the children of God. And it's beautiful when all of those elements are entwined in our gospel proclamation and our preaching. Um, I was just preaching last Sunday in Romans again, and I said something. I told the people, I said, some of you are going to just really react to this, but listen closely. I said, every single sin and unrighteous act that's ever been committed will be punished. It will either be punished in your substitute, Jesus Christ on the cross, or it will be punished in you individually and personally in hell. Every sin will be punished. But the good news of the gospel is that by grace and according to his mercy and his love for a fallen world, he has provided a substitute to endure that punishment in our stead. Um, and that's good news. And I just think we have to embrace the holistic picture of God in the Bible. Um, love and justice. 
grace and holiness. And if we eliminate either one of those, you know, if you eliminate love and grace, you've got this, this bully who just wants to whack us upside the head every time we misstep. If you eliminate his holiness and his justice, you have this, you know, celestial curmudgeon who just relates to us like Santa Claus at Christmas. Um, I want a God who is holy and loving, who's just and tender. And that's what we have in the God of the Bible. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. It's been my pleasure anytime, Jason. I love doing it. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.